Hey, this is Matt Markin, and it's time for episode 47 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In this episode, we're talking with David Travis from University of Wisconsin River Falls, Kira Solon from University of Central Missouri, and Craig McGill from Kansas State University. If you don't already, subscribe to your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Here's the episode. Welcome back to the Adventures Advising Podcast. We are at episode 47 and on our way to episode 50. We have some great interviews for you on this episode, but before we get to that, a couple quick shout outs. Thank you as always to Olivia Miller. Olivia posted on Twitter regarding episode 46 and said, I say this a lot, but another great episode from Adventures in Advising this week. And also from Devin Lysak, who on LinkedIn shouted out our podcast and said, to all my advisors, check out this great podcast. Thank you so much, Devin and Olivia. You are too kind. We do try our best, though. I'm excited for this episode, not just for the awesome person being interviewed, but I strongly hinted at Dr. Melinda Anderson being back on the podcast, and she is, but as a guest host today. Hey, Melinda. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I am well, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. I'm glad that you're here. And thank you for being on this interview again. And our guest today is Dr. David Travis. Dr. David Travis is a graduate of the University of Georgia, where he received both his BS and MS degrees in geography, and is also a graduate of Indiana University, where he received his PhD in geography with a concentration in climatology in all degrees. Since arriving at University of Wisconsin-Whitewater in the fall of 1994, Dr. Travis has distinguished himself in teaching, research, and service. He won an Outstanding Teaching Award in 2001 and Outstanding Research Award in 2003. As an administrator, Dr. Travis has served in a variety of roles, including department chair, associate dean for two different colleges, dean of the College of Letters and Sciences at UW-Whitewater, and is currently in his fourth year as the provost and vice chancellor for academic affairs at UW-River Falls since moving to that campus in 2018. His priorities as an administrator have been centered around faculty, staff, professional development, improving student success, and innovative approaches to managing change and moving the university forward. And I think we're going to touch upon a lot of that in this episode. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. I feel I feel privileged to have Melinda with me in this interview. Fantastic. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you both again for being here. And I'm actually going to toss it to Melinda for our first question. Well, thank you so much, Matt. Um, so, David, if you would mind sharing with us a, a little bit about your path into higher education, would you mind sharing a little bit about Absolutely, that? absolutely. So, as as Matt mentioned earlier, I'm um, a native Georgian, by the way, go Braves. They <laughs> finally won the World Series for me after <laughs> a long drought and a lot of pain and suffering, but... I was, I'm still a little hoarse, actually, from cheering the other night. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I'm a, um, a native Georgian. I went to school at the University of Georgia, as Matt said, um, and, and grew up in Athens, Georgia, actually. So I'm kind of a university college brat. I like to say, call myself, my my dad was a professor. And I knew mm. I knew that I wanted to, to pursue higher education in some form because I, I watched how my father as a professor helped to transform the lives of students, particularly graduate students where during the holidays, all of my father's graduate students would come over for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and many of them were international students and didn't really have anywhere else to go. So 
they were sort of my big brothers and big sisters. And I, I learned a lot from them and, you know, and, and their paths. And I realized uh, it was a great opportunity for me to give back to the next generation or two of students. Um, my true love is weather and climate. I'm a, I'm a weather nerd, weather weenie, whatever you want to, whatever term you want to use. Um, <laughs> I still get excited about the first snowstorm of the year, which by the way, here in Northern Wisconsin probably won't be too long. Um, <laughs> And I get excited about just um, the power of nature in general. I'm just, you know, mm. I'm in awe of nature. And I, I love it when nature slaps us in the face and reminds us that it's still in charge. And I, and I, I, I appreciate that. So um, my, my passion really in getting into uh, higher education and ultimately becoming a professor was through climatology and, and earth science through physical geography. Um, and for really for about 15 years, I was your traditional faculty person at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, going through the tenure and promotion process. And eventually I, um, I, I moved into a little bit into administration as a department chair and found that was uh, another way to help another uh, broader group of people and continued working my way up, up the ladder. Um, I, I really enjoy the ability to have... Um, uh, some, um, I guess, influence on professional development um, of the faculty. And that's really been my passion as an administrator is, is, is helping to identify new ways to give new opportunities, particularly to marginalized faculty, uh, those that may have struggled at various points in their career or in their personal lives and kind of felt like they were kind of giving up on the on the opportunity, for instance, to be promoted to full professor. And so I developed new programs, especially at Whitewater, that really helped, I think, give them some new opportunities. Um, as a provost, I think my my focus has shifted since I joined uh, UW uh, River Falls, and I've become really focused on students. Um, I still have a passion for faculty, of course, and a lot of what I do is to support our academic uh, side of the house, but I was very fortunate two years ago um, in my second year here, the chancellor at the time came to me and said, uh, David, we have currently a division of academic affairs and a division of student affairs. And you seem to be someone that's very interested in bringing units together that typically um, op operate in silos that, you know, that term we often use in, in higher education. And, and I, I am someone that's tried to break those walls down in my career. And he said, how would you like to bring those two divisions together and you oversee both of them at the same time? Mm -hmm. um, and at first I thought, wow, how the heck am I going to do this? You know, I don't know much about student affairs. It's a whole different discipline, in my opinion, that has a whole different type of training. But I did see that there was a gap, I think, on every campus, but it felt like even stronger on this campus, on this campus a gap in understanding and appreciation of the work that each other did. Academic affairs folks just didn't really understand the incredibly important work folks in student affairs did. And the same thing really went in the other direction. I think the student affairs folks often thought the faculty just taught, you know, did research, went home, and weren't really involved in, in the students' lives outside of the classroom. And honestly, both of those were clearly false. Right. And so I started on a path of bringing those two units together, those two divisions together, and I was fortunate enough to uh, to have them both report to me for almost two years. Um, it wasn't easy. 
And, and maybe we'll talk about this a bit more later, but because I think it, it also hurt um, the ability for them to maintain their identity, particularly the folks in student affairs. And um, once that chancellor moved on, <laughs> we actually went back to the old model, uh, but we changed the dynamic a bit. We renamed our student affairs division, um, a division of student success, and really had a focus on retention as the primary mission of that unit. Um, but we kept some of the connection points between the two areas going, um, and, and it's where we are now uh, at this at this university. Um, but it's been a great opportunity for me to really learn and do a deep dive into the great work that people in student affairs do on a daily basis. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. No, thank you so much. That's so powerful to, um, number one, share your journey about, um, I can imagine, we won't talk about this now, but I would love to hear your perspective on what's happening with the whole, the climate debate, right? Because I know that you've got some strong opinions on uh, everything that we're hearing about, <laughs> um, but just your perspective on having, you know, what, academic and student affairs in terms of, you know, the, the gaps of understanding. There's truth and myths on both sides, right? And bringing that together, but then recognizing the need for their own identity. So just just powerful right there. So thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. Happy to do it. And um, I could tell a lot of stories. We could talk, by the way, I don't make small talk about weather. If you ask me, <laughs> uh, you know, hey, David, nice weather today. I say, well, technically the temperatures are, you know, 10 degrees above normal. And I don't know how do you define nice, you know, that so so it, it, I do have strong opinions about weather and climate. But now I also, yes, have very strong opinions about the really important role that people in student affairs play towards student success. I mean, it's it's so powerful. And uh, my time in Nakata only reinforced that. So you're saying like the person who's walking down the hallway, that's like, hey, David, nice weather as they want to continue on. You're going to be like, let me spend half an hour talking to you about that, that comment. You know, it's one of those things when you ask someone, how are you doing today? And when the answer comes well, and I think, oh, goodness, I was just being polite. I really didn't care how you were doing. But but now you're going to tell me how you're doing. It's the same thing about the weather. They, they, they've learned not to make small talk with David about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll have a separate episode where we just talk about weather. And yeah, we'll hey, a whole hour. Sure. might take all day. But <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're going to get to Nakata, but I do want to come back to the the uh, topic of kind of combining both of those divisions with student affairs, academic affairs. So you were talking about it wasn't an easy process. Did you receive any like pushback from it? And also, did you find that there was overlap with what? people in academic affairs are doing versus uh, in student affairs? Yeah, so definitely yes on both parts. Um, a lot of pushback. Uh, UW-River Falls, like many campuses, um, has a tremendous amount of pride and tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an interesting place. Uh, and again, I think many campuses are this, are this way where people work so hard and often are undercompensated. But when you go to them and say, I'm going to do something to change 
your day-to-day responsibilities to make things hopefully better for you, there's immediate resistance to that. Don't take work away from me now. I might complain about being overworked, but if you take something away from me, it, it somehow comes across as I'm not doing a good enough job and somebody else has to step in and take care of that for me. So I've had to work through uh, a plan right now and some changes we're trying to implement, but that was a, a great learning experience for me to to move slowly and and listen to people's concerns and reinforce to them that this is not something that you're doing wrong. This is not a bad thing. We're actually trying to improve the relationship across campus um, between our student affairs experts and our academic affairs experts. Um, And there were a lot of misunderstandings. I'll give you an example. I, um, I was talking to one of our student affairs leaders at the time Um, really during my first year as I was learning and listening and learning a lot about the university. And one of them was very upset that faculty wouldn't send their students to to, to the talks that were being set up in student affairs on on really important issues of race, diversity, um, you know, a range of topics that we that we think are really important right now for students to and particularly the students that often don't buy in. We want to get them there somehow. And he was very frustrated. And I said, well, when do you tell them about it? When do you give them the notice? He goes, well, I tell them about it. These are, these are in the middle of the semester a lot of times. He goes, well, I give them at least a week or two's notice. And I said, you know, you, you might not realize that faculty set up their syllabus, you know, a week, weeks before the semester starts. And that's a contract for their students that they really have to honor. And for you to just simply assume that they can now give them an assignment or change the structure of their course on the fly like that, it's really, it can be really challenging for them. And he didn't seem to have any comprehension of that whatsoever. He just felt like this was a simple thing that he could give, that they could give out an assignment. And so there was a clear disconnect there. And, and, and it was interpreted as disinterest by the faculty, mm-hmm. but it was just simply the rigidity of the courses, the way they're set up and the learning outcomes that we have to you know try to get to that simply didn't make it as permeable as they were you know, assuming. So once I explained that to them and, and we came up with a plan that any, any talks, any events that are going on through the year would be posted early enough in the, you know, before the semester, they would also send it out to the faculty ahead of time so they can incorporate it onto their syllabi. It really seemed to improve the attendance. And that seems like a really small thing, but it, it seems to not only have made a difference with attendance, but the, the, um, the uh, assumptions that there were there were there was lack of interest mm-hmm. seemed to have gone away and 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 so you know th- that's one example kind of in the student affairs direction of of kind of assuming things about faculty and then the flip side of course is the faculty don't really understand a lot of times what student affairs people do um there, there's an assumption that for instance and I, i'm generalizing here so i have to be careful but there's an assumption an assumption that it's it's a lot of emotional support. Okay, they're there to give students hugs and to make them feel better and to you know be kind of the cheerleaders of the students and 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 you know help them through the difficult times. But um, what I've tried to help explain to the faculty, um, as, as especially as I, I learned more about it myself, was these folks are grounded in, in academics in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very different way, but at the same level of rigor. Mm-hmm. They understand um, what, what it takes outside the classroom to help a student be successful. 
And there's a, such a wide range of experiences that students, of course, have when they're at the university that um, I think faculty just simply don't have the training to understand and appreciate. And so I've pointed out several examples of cases where students that were really struggling in their classes um, and were ready to give up were talked out of it and really brought off the cliff, if you will, and, and not, not giving up um, mm -hmm. by people in student affairs that could really connect with them in ways the faculty couldn't. And so it's, it's been a struggle and we still have a long ways to go, but it's, again, it's been a learning experience for me. And a, I think we're, we're growing closer together every year. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a work in progress. And so day to day, but Melinda, you, I'm sure you have a, a private comment to that too. Well, yes, you know, I, I, I love the, the examples that you gave in terms of the idea of being grounded in a discipline and having um, a different perspective, but just the fact that you're kind of sitting in the middle of that and being able to kind of give the, the different perspectives. But it really speaks to me about the trust that they have in you and being able to bring those perspectives to the other side, right? And I feel like it sometimes when you're so busy kind of running in your own lanes and then somebody being able to say, this is what that looks like over there. And then somebody being able to say, no, this is what that looks like over there starts that conversation and kind of slows people down. And so I just think about your examples being very powerful of, of being able to point out that there is um, a different kind of disciplinary thought, right? That happens in terms of the care and concern but then also the co-curricular efforts, right, that are happening from a student affairs lens, but then also helping student affairs understand that you're right, faculty don't just, can't just adjust and, and do things on the fly and looking at a syllabus as a contract in terms of learning outcomes. And, and when you think about from, you know, what I need to teach in this course that builds on this course that builds on this course. And, you know, you know, like if you haven't experienced that or have been in that in that field or, yeah. you know, to understand how those things are connected lockstep, it does seem like, why can't you just cancel your class and send them over? And you know what I mean? And, and yeah. you, right, exactly. And it's like, no, no, I can't do this. And, and when you think about accreditation standards and disciplines and things exactly. of that nature, if you have no experience with that, right, it, you know, those things sound like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about, right? Yeah. And so being able to explain that to both sides is a very powerful opportunity that you've been able to introduce. So, well, yeah, I appreciate that. And, it, you know, I'm still learning how to do it. And I, um, they are different languages. And often, actually, I would say different kinds of people. I went to a great session in Dakota the, the, in Cincinnati where there was a presentation um, given about, um, in essence, strategies to get faculty to attend more advising events. And, mm. and, and these people presented, I don't remember which university it was, but um, they, they, they gave it, they did a nice job and they did, they, they, they showed some of the efforts they made to, um, to get faculty involved at advising, open, kind of open advising events. And, you know, but there was also confusion, like, like um, they were, they were, they didn't understand why faculty just wouldn't show up at these things. And so I made a couple of comments at the end to the uh, presenters that, uh, you know, faculty, generally speaking, are introverts. A lot of them don't feel comfortable going into situations that are unknown and unplanned. And I think folks that are in student affairs often are the opposite. A lot of extroverts, they can kind of operate on the fly and kind of make adjustments as needed. But I said, if you, so I said, do you have a program where when the faculty show up, you introduce them 
and you have a clearly defined kind of uh, responsibility for them. And she said, no, we just kind of want them to wander around the room and find students and start talking to them. And I said, <laughs> I'm sorry, with faculty, that's just not going to work. They're just not comfortable with that. They need to know when to be there, what their responsibilities are, when they'll be introduced. Um, so it's just a different kind of animal. And I think trying to get those different groups of people to in, to communicate and understand each other is the real challenge. Right, right. No, that's a that's a, a great point. And you know, you we talked a little bit about the Nakata conference. And so I'm gonna just kind of jump in and and ask our question about that experience for you. So you you went to the Cincinnati uh, annual conference and so um, we want to know a little bit from your perspective, what was that like? This was your first conference experience, correct? For, with with uh, Nakata. Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that experience. What kind of made you say, okay, today's the day I'm going <laughs> to go to my first Nakata event. And, and how was that for you? Well, I'll say it wasn't even my first Nakata event. It was my first event focused on student affairs or student success, I'll say, because that's the term we use here primarily. Um, so it was a different group. Of, I only... I ran into a couple of people I knew from UW Whitewater and so on and, and met you two great folks. Um, but I really didn't know anybody at this conference. And part of this for me, I'll just step back for a second. When I got the job as provost, um, I, I, one of the, one of the few things that I, I negotiated was some extra funding that I could go for my own professional development to various conferences, AAC and U and ACE and so on. But um, over the first year or two pre COVID, uh, it didn't work out for me. The con one of the conferences was canceled and there was bad weather and I couldn't get there and so on. And then COVID kicked in. And, and so um, I haven't really had the opportunity to go to an in-person conference since I got this job uh, over three years ago. And so <clears throat> I decided, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go to a place where I can completely escape from the, you know, the sorts of things I think about every day and learn an entire new area that can help me grow professionally that I just basically feel ignorant about. Now I, I have, as I said earlier, have learned a lot in my opportunities to oversee student affairs, but I, I wasn't able to do it as, as a learner. I was more doing it as a supervisor. And so I needed to step into the shoes of someone that is sitting in the audience, listening and learning. And so I just chose that. I, th I thought this is my opportunity um, and so I, I chose this conference. Plus, I think Cincinnati's a really cool city. Yeah. I, I think it's very underrated and underappreciated. And I thought, yep, because I, I used to go to Cincinnati uh, when I was at Indiana University. I drive over to watch my beloved Atlanta Braves come up and play the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> a couple hour drive. And I go over there and I always thought, what a cool city, you know, with the rivers and the, the hills and everything. So that was that was part of it. Um, but, yeah, the, the goal was really to to escape somewhat from the typical day-to-day -day things I do, but also to learn about how to take these connections that we've been talking about to the next level, bring that back to my campus. And so what I, I really wanted to do was listen to what other people were saying about faculty. Mm. And, and I think in almost every session I went to, there was a comment here or there about, you know, well, good luck with that. Or, or, or you know, that's not how the faculty will interpret it or, um, you know, just, you know, so, so, and I tried my, tried, I guess, to wear my faculty hat at times, 
And I, I outed myself a few times as a provost at a few of the sessions because um, they were gonna they were gonna bash some provosts too. And I thought, you know, I, I better I better let them know that I'm here in a nice way and say, you know, because <laughs> we broke out into subgroups and I didn't want the poor people in my group to think, oh my gosh, who am I with this provost? So I outed myself pretty quickly in some of these and didn't scare too many people away. But um, but yeah, I really wanted to learn. The most important thing I wanted to take away was how to convince faculty to let go of their advising responsibilities and, uh, and trust professional advisors, particularly in the freshman and sophomore years, to handle the bulk of our advising. On this campus, faculty have been doing all of the advising. Now I'm talking freshman through senior, and um, we only have a, a handful of professional advisors primarily for our undeclared students. And then once they declare a major, they get assigned a faculty advisor and then they're off and running. And, um, and as I said earlier, you know, uh, although faculty will talk a lot about their advising modes being exhaustive, and they are, we have faculty that have 80 advisees while they have a full teaching load and they're doing their research and all their service. And they also struggle with the idea of letting it go. And so I wanted to learn about that as well. What are some, what's some of the, um, the language I can use? What are some examples I can give them of where we transition from faculty advising to professional advising and students' success grew in response to that? And so that was my main focus. And I, I did, you know, I, I came away with, um, I think I, I, I had several talks with very compelling data that showed how professional advisors in certain fields, and they, they were focused in certain fields. So I'm not sure how transferable it is, but still, generally speaking, it showed the, the value it had for students. Um, I also, just by listening to people talk, sort of figured out some ideas on how to communicate more effectively across these areas. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Oh, wonderful. Well, you know, and it's just so interesting, you know, that one time for breakfast that you uh, came in and, and sat at our table and we had that wonderful conversation that led to where we are today. Um, and we discovered, you know, um, who we were sitting at that table and we were going to do, um, what did we call it? The, we were, um, well, kidding around about having a, a, a dance, a dance um, later that day um, when we were trying to do some TikTok videos and you That's were like, right. oh, no, I sat at the wrong table. <laughs> yeah, at, first I, at first I thought, well, here I was walking. I felt like I was, you know, in seventh grade. I'm walking around with my tray. Where am I going to sit? You know, uh, these people look friendly. So I sit here. And you were closest to the food table, by the way. I thought that was convenient. If I want to get a refill, I'll just hop back over there. Why do you think we were sitting there? <laughs> yes, exactly. Smart, right? And I had no idea who you were, of course, but um, we started talking and I thought, this is great. And then, yeah, you mentioned that. I thought, uh, how can I sneak off this table really quickly here? I don't, I'm not going to, I don't know about doing a TikTok video, but, but it turned out to be a really great conversation. And I, um, yeah, I mean, just, just again, actually, one of my goals coming to this was to meet some of the organizers, the people that are the leaders and, and Melinda, particularly to get to sit next to you and talk to you because um, we, we struggle on this campus. You know, we, we are a smaller campus where our budgets are thin and we don't have a lot of the staffing in our, in our student affairs area, student success 
that many campuses have. For instance, we don't have a dean of students. And we're talking about developing a position now and just listening to you all talk about, you know, the way in your mind, how you see a, a successful university being run, especially from the student affairs perspective, was just great insight for me to take away. Right, right. Well, you know, what I, I loved about that conversation with you was just your your passion and your commitment for student success, but then also recognizing, you know, just the paradigm shift in terms of how we need to be supporting our students. Um, uh, I always love conversations when we talk about, you know, faculty mentorship and the role faculty advising um, should play, but then also recognizing the value of professional advising support and what that can look like on a campus. Uh, because there are models that are in place where you have professional advising support really around that transition point for that first year, second year. And then when students feel secure in their, their disciplines, and then the mentoring ship becomes really critical when you think about either graduate school or going into the world of work where that faculty expertise and that knowledge, right, really becomes critical when they think about, okay, what is gonna be my next steps when I think about graduating? And so we had that really rich conversation about how those two areas work well together. Um, and when you think about, you know, not just retention, right, but the persistence piece. I think sometimes people get caught in that conversation around retention, but when we start talking about student success, you're ultimately talking about persistence as well as completion. And I think that that conversation around persistence and completion uh, makes my heart happy because, it, you know, so, so what? You came back, right? But did you finish are you successful in completing, completing? And then what is, you know, what does it look like for you to move into the world of work or into graduate school? Because that's ultimately what we want for our students. And so having that conversation with you was just wonderful. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. And um, I, you know, I think about what, what people are so busy and, and, it, you know, what are we trained to do and what are we best at? Let's face it. Faculty teach the classes, they're experts in their fields and they can help students with their, as you said, kind of their transition from the university into that first job, or maybe it's graduate school, but they're not trained to deal with the challenges that freshmen have, those transitional issues. Um, you know, especially, I mean, we look at what's happening right now. Uh, one thing we've noticed on our campus is the students are really about a year behind in their maturity. Um, I had some students in my office the other day uh, upset because they're they were junior students and they were upset because they're, they're they feel like the the classes are too unfairly difficult for for them and and, and they want to you know why aren't professors and so as we talked about it one of them said well as an example I I'm giving presentations in all my classes and I'm I'm not feeling like I'm really prepared for that and it's my anxiety level and all these things. And I said, well, you took speech, right? And you learned, that's part of the point of taking us. And he said, yeah, but I did it online. Mm. And, you know, I, I was talking to a camera with my dog and my roommate in the room. And, you know, that, that wasn't scary. I mean, we, let's face it, the, the virtues of a speech course aren't the, the mechanics of how to give a speech. That's part of it. It's getting over the fear of speaking in front of an audience and he, you know, he said, I'm just not prepared to give mm -hmm. these speeches. I'm thinking about dropping all my classes because I'm terrified. And so that's one example of many that I don't think the faculty, although I'm really trying, I don't think the faculty can 
can really uh, recognize. I mean, they can they hear it and they can respond to it, I guess. But let's face it, they have their courses, they have their learning outcomes, they have their content, and they have an obligation to prepare their students for the next level class up. They don't want to disappoint their colleagues and let them down. So they have a certain level of rigor they have to adhere to. But I think our student success experts are the ones that really can appreciate that and can and can hopefully communicate that to the faculty that, yeah, we've got we understand you've got certain levels of rigor you have to adhere to. But could we at least consider giving these students a bit of a break right now and, and bending things a little bit to allow them to get caught up? Many of them didn't have a high school senior year that was normal in any way. A lot of them didn't have a normal freshman year. So they are behind. And I think more than ever, we need to rely on our experts in the areas of student success to help us realize that. Right. No, I I completely agree. My, you know, I have a freshman in college right now and we talk about that a lot. You know, what does student development look like when it's been interrupted? You know, um, for for all our student uh, affairs and academic affairs professionals out there, when I throw out chickering and um, you know, seven vectors and everybody laughs. But, you know, when you think about that development train, right, and what happens when your freshman is still a, a high school senior and what happens when your sophomore now is really just a freshman, right? But we keep the train moving and you're right, there's blips in their development, right? And so there is this need, um, like a boot camp is what I what I talk to my daughter about all the time, like, what does your boot camp look like? You know, we we've gotten through the high school year with the idea of a virtual connections, and then ha- here's all this freedom thrown at you. You know, she, I told her, I said, don't let your laundry back up. I won't. She calls me the other day. I have new clothes. You know what I mean? And but then it's not just I need to do laundry. It's panic. Yeah. I have no clothes, right? So then it's like you need to wash. You know what I mean? But it's it's kind of like. So you see what I'm saying? So it's like, what does the boot camp look like? Because we can't just panic. We need to panic and, okay, panic a little bit and then act. So I completely understand what you're saying, David. What does the boot camp look like yeah. to then to, to cover the blip of the interruption? And, you know, the practitioner scholar in me is like, this is a fascinating research study of what do we need to do to cover the blip of the interruption, right? Because, it has to get, how do we get back on track, right? Because how do we catch up, right, from what we've lost? Uh, But I think that that's a a great point because you can have the professional advisors or the student success support, right, do the feedback loop in terms of where are they and how how do we catch up and then what do they need in order to continue giving back that support? So that's that's an excellent point. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, our faculty last spring, and I was very proud of them, and I worked with them, our faculty senate passed some um, new policy to give our probationary, so this is our faculty senate, our probationary faculty um, some, I'll, I'll just say some accommodations on expectations for uh, reappointment eventually for their tenure and promotion decision based on the impacts of COVID. So maybe not as much scholarship expected, maybe not as many conferences attended, those kind of things. Maybe even some some forgiveness on teaching evaluation since you had to go online and all that. Um, and I think it's very appropriate and I'm glad we did it, but we haven't done it for students. 
Right. And so if we're going to do it for the faculty, we should do it for the students as well. And, and that's where I am now in trying to work. I have a meeting with our department chairs on Friday, and I'm going to talk with them directly about that problem because I'm hearing we're, the anxiety levels on our campuses with our students, depression. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it, suicide attempts. It's, it's, um, it's the worst it's ever been. And we need to step in now and recognize how dire the situation is for these students, or we're going to lose them in, in multiple ways. Right. And so I'm hoping, you know, that there's a call to action here soon from the faculty. Yeah. Cause I think it's a, a lot of your, both your points. I mean, you have this, the first year students that, yeah, senior year of high school was pretty much all online. For our institution, our orientation was also online. And it was like a three hour, here's a whole bunch of information. Hopefully you remember it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they're trying to navigate this fall semester. And I'm meeting with a lot of students where they have a lot of questions that past cohorts wouldn't have had, you know, they're, how do I register? I'm like, wait, we we talked about this, but yeah, there was, where's the boot camp? Where's the extra, here's how you do it again. You know, let's go over this information again. Um, even trying to read their 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 audit of what classes they still need or the roadmap, a lot of these important parts that you know we maybe kind of glossed over or briefly talked about during orientation. There, yeah, is there a follow up? And I hear this from a lot of institutions as well. But then, you know, as advisors, you know, we're trying to help these students, but then we're feeling overwhelmed because it's you know one after the other, and we don't feel like we get a break at all with this and then we're getting tired and what what are we supposed to do so you know it, there's a lot of boot camps i guess all over the place that that we need to have or extra trainings as well yeah 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 yeah. we actually started a uh we did a boot camp for the first time and at least since i've been here but for many years last summer for students transitioning and we opened it uh not just um for incoming students from high school but also for our second year students that didn't have a normal first year to your point, Matt, you know, they, they missed out on a lot of that, you know, even the language. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but what's a syllabus. I mean, I don't think students know that word coming out of high school, you know? And, um, and so, and we, we were surprised how many second year students uh, chose to enroll in a summer boot camp mm-hmm. that was typically intended for freshmen, but that, that shows you they knew they needed the, the extra help. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I agree. And, you know, with the idea of the, the boot camps and um, the extra support, you're, you know, thinking about, Matt, what you said about, you know, um, if you're doing more, you're doing more, right? So then the idea of resting or the breaks, I know that they're far and few in between, and now they're almost really much non-existent, right? But the heart of an advisor, the heart of student success work is that you want to make sure that everybody is, is brought up and everybody is supported, but, um, you know, no rest for the weary. Everybody's going to burn out. So then you also have to plan your breaks. And, you know, I think about um, in K through 12 systems, you know, wellness breaks, you know, giving teachers half days, things of that nature, because even the K through 12 systems are like, we're going to lose teachers. Teachers aren't coming back. Um, And so I just think about um, all these models that are in place. Um, When I think about, um, you know, how do we do this well and and how do we 
become more planful, right? Because of what we know has been interrupted um, to make sure that we're giving people what they need, uh, but then being mindful that there's only 24 hours in a day. So, um, so I just want you to know that I hear you because I've been hearing that um, when I've been visiting campuses, you know, the question I get is, you know, we're, we're operating virtually and that's that, you know, when you're doing things differently is taking more, um, you know, it's, it's stressful, right? So the stress looks different in terms of doing things differently. And so how are we able to plan our breaks so that we can continue to do good work? Yeah, well, I guess then even connected to that is, you know, we're talking about breaks and, you know, making sure we're not burnt out or we're getting to that burnout part. But we're also dealing with a lot of advisors, probably faculty as well, that are leaving, you know, and then that you have fewer people to handle the workload and the different responsibilities. And I mean, I think this kind of connects to because, uh, David, you were uh, part of a, a podcast episode in uh, last April uh, for Wisconsin's public radios, the West Side, and you talked about um, academic uh, implications from COVID. And so on that episode, they talked about, you know, budget shortfall, uh, downturn in enrollment, uh, students canceling trips, canceling their study abroad. But then now we see a lot of advisors potentially even across the board and other advising professionals. So I guess uh, with in your position, how, how do you address that? Well, we um, one of the things that we're coming to, to, to realize, and I, I, I think I may have been a little guilty on this. So there's a tension on campuses right now about working virtually versus being in person. And, um, and you know, part of it is we we're trying to show shows even the wrong word. We're trying to provide a, a normal experience for students. Right. They want that. They want that college experience. So. One of the ways to do that, of course, is to have the normal physical presence of the staff. The library's open. There are football games on the weekend, all that stuff, right? Um, but this, at the same time, there it, we learned a lot from COVID that things can function quite effectively virtually. Certain things can. And so we made a decision at one point to allow things like advising to happen um, in a hybrid way, we'll say. Students can choose whether or not they want to meet with an advisor face to face or they can meet uh, virtually. Uh, but also there was an assumption and this is where things I think have have gone the wrong way. And, we've, and I think we've corrected it that if you're working virtually, you can take on more work. Mm -hmm. and, I pre and I appreciate the point that both of you just made, because what it does is it bleeds over into your personal life so much that, you know, now suddenly your home life is your work life and and. You know, your kids are walking around in the background and you're trying to make dinner and you're and you're involved. And, you know, and so um, what I've had to do, and this is including me looking in the mirror, is I've had to say, no, if they choose to work virtually, we're not going to pile on more work. If, if anything, we're going to try to restrict them from overdoing it because we have such amazing people on this campus. They will keep working into the evenings and on the weekends. And I have to basically say to their supervisors, don't let them do it. So that's, I guess that's one way we're dealing with it, Matt. It's, it's a struggle um, because, you know, you mentioned turnover. Well, it, it, in order to prevent turnover or reduce it, and we have had problems with that, we have to be more flexible and say, okay, if you need to live in Illinois and, and you, but you're willing to work here and be available for our students virtually, although that sounds like a problem, we have to we have to get over it, and we have to recognize that there is a place for you, two states away or a state away, to um, to be able to work and still do your job effectively. So 
part of what I've learned over the last year since I did that podcast is to be um, more open-minded and more flexible and, and allow people to use their talents in different ways. And, and hopefully it will slow the turnover. We have lost some professional advisors. We also lost some very important people in our health and counseling area. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to we want to keep them, but allow them to work from home or from other places in a more flexible way. And hopefully that'll help. Right. No, that's actually I just I, I love hearing um, you reflect on, you know, what is it that's important? What is it that what is it that matters in terms of how we support our students and how do we provide flexibility that's not going to interrupt services? Because the question that I get a lot is, how do we do this well? How do we appreciate those who who are giving too much and how do we set those boundaries? Um, because the big question that um, I, I often get is, you know, we we want to be there for students. How do we how do we set those those boundaries and um, and, and manage this in a way that's equitable across the board? Yeah. Um, and so so just thank you for for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll just give you one more quick example. Um, you know, again, things that we've learned that we were forced to change that I think now are for the better. Um, and I was a faculty member with with office hours every week, multiple hours a week for students to come by and see me. And I sat there and worked on my email and did my research because no one would show up most days. Right. Um, when we went to virtual office hours, students were all over the place. That That's when they were interacting with their faculty. Um, I mean, I had faculty tell me I've never had so much participation in office hours until we went virtual. So now we had this dilemma. We have clear data that shows that they didn't show up in person, but they do when it was virtual. Now it was forced, but should we just keep it that way? Mm. It's, it's really what's in the best interest of the students. And at this point, we've just said, oh, it's your choice, faculty. You can decide either way. But I'm inclined to say, hey, why don't you just hold virtual office hours? Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's that intimidation factor and other reasons why students don't want to go by and see faculty. But the bottom line is they, they have a greater comfort, I think, with that way of conversing now. And if it gives them FaceTime, whether it's virtual or not, it doesn't matter. That's the most important thing. So, you know, these forced lessons, we can't just ignore them. We got to learn and adapt and try to apply them going forward. Yeah. And pre-pandemic, these were things we didn't think about. And now that we've had to go through it, it's like, oh, this is actually something we can continue to do. I mean, I think it goes to even how a lot of processes were paper-based. And, you know, anytime someone wanted to go uh, something virtual, electronic with it, the answer was like, oh, we'll get to it at some point. And then when you're forced to do it, it's like, yeah, you can actually get it done. <laughs> exactly. And and as we wind down with, with this interview, I mean, we had a lot more we want to talk about. So we might end up having to have a part two. Um, I know we wanted to talk about our connection, not only just with Nakata, but with uh, Jamie Zamian, uh, who you stole from Sonoma State, uh, my buddy. <laughs> um, but then also your BBC documentary that, that you were part of. But um, in an article that was from 2018, when you were first hired at UW-River Falls, um, the River Falls Chancellor uh, was quoted on that article saying that, you know, there was a strong support for candidacy for Dr. Travis and with feedback citing his student-centered mindset, supportive inclusivity and positive and enthusiastic approach. And um, I think Melinda and I, just talking to you, we hear that in your answers. And so we truly appreciate you being on this podcast and 
and kind of talking about your path into advising everything that you're doing at your institution, all the great work. And we're glad you had a great time and learned a lot at the Nakata conference. Hopefully we'll see you in Portland. But if uh, listeners have any questions or want to interact, how can they reach you? Um, well, I'm, you can find me on the web uh, or you can just email me at uh, my first name, David, uh, dot my second name, Travis. So david.travis at uwrf.edu. That's my university address. Um, but it's out there on the web. And, uh, yeah, and if you do a deep search, you can find me with a lot more hair and a few pounds thinner doing interviews with the BBC and others. Back when I had some climate research, they got some interesting uh, publicity. So happy to come back and talk about that at some point down the road if you'd like, Matt. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thank you, David. Thank you so much, David, for being part of this episode. And we definitely need to have you back on again and maybe with Jamie Zamian for part two. And thank you, Melinda, for co-hosting with me. That was a lot of fun and can't wait to have you co-host again. Before we get to our next interview, you know what's next. Here's Dane Zanowski from Temple University to chat about Dane's desk. Hello, Adventures in Advising podcast listeners. This is Dane coming to you from Dane's Desk, video series for the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. I'm here to talk about some great videos we have up uh, on the channel. First, most recently, I have an interview with Lizzie Harmon, who talks about a very, very important topic of advisor self-care and well-being. So definitely check that one out for some good tips. And then coming up in a couple of weeks, I have a video interview with my friend and colleague from Drexel University, Tom Hinman, who is a new advisor, and he talks about taking on that new advisor role during the pandemic. So again, definitely check that one out. So you can see all the Dane's Desk videos on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. And feel free to connect with me through LinkedIn or through Facebook if you have ideas about topics or if you want to be a guest on Dane's Desk. And as always, keep advising. Thanks, Dane. Now on to our next interview with Kira Solon and Craig McGill. So up next, we have Kira Solon, who is a faculty member in the Harmon College of Business and Professional Studies at the University of Central Missouri, where she teaches courses related to business communication, events management, and leadership. She is also the faculty advisor for the events marketing and management program. Currently, she is a doctoral candidate at the University of Missouri, pursuing her EDD in educational leadership. She has earned a Master's of Arts degree in Technical and Professional Writing from Oklahoma State University and a Bachelor of Arts degree in English from Kansas State University. In addition, she holds a National Etiquette Training Certification from the Etiquette Institute in St. Louis, Missouri. Having worked in higher education for nearly two decades, Ms. Solon began her career by serving as an academic advisor and then career development coordinator before transitioning to a full-time faculty role. Kira, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And we also have your partner in crime with us today, and that is Dr. Craig McGill, a returning guest to the podcast. Last time we spoke with Craig was last year, and at that time was working at University of South Dakota. Now Craig is, is an assistant professor at Kansas State University and has a new book out with Dr. Jennifer Jocelyn titled oh, Advising cool. Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer College Students. Craig, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. Yes, and happy to have you both on. So, Kira, let's start with you. 
Um, usually we ask our guests to kind of give us their background. So what, what's been your path into higher education and academic advising? Well, I've actually been thinking about this. As I've mentioned, I've been listening to the podcast and I know you asked this question and I just, I feel like such an imposter. So I'm trying to think of how, <laughs> how to frame this in a way that's most relatable. Um, as you said in my bio, I got my master's degree in technical and professional communication. I had no intentions of ever being in any sort of education. I come from a family of educators and I guess I knew better. Um, but when I was in graduate school, I started teaching as a part of a teaching assistantship and then I started training. So I was training at the technology center doing industry soft skill trainings, and I liked that, but I didn't really have a plan for how to move into my career. And so it was really one of those happenstance things. There was a job for an academic advisor open at the institution that I had graduated from that I was lecturing at. I had done a lot of study abroad when I was an undergraduate, and this was a, a study abroad specific position. I thought, well, I'll apply for this because it sounds like benefits and, you know, a full-time gig and everything. And so I applied and I didn't get the job, uh, <laughs> but they did interview me. And then they called me back to interview for a lower list as a senior advising position, an advisor one position. And I didn't get that job. Uh, <laughs> there were two positions open and they offered it to two other people, one of whom declined. And so then they called me and offered me the job. Um, and so I did that for a year. I worked specifically with a, we call them at my institution now an open options population, but an undecided population. And I was only in academic advising for a year. I loved it. I thought that it was really, really fun. I felt like I was getting pretty good at it, but it didn't pay really anything at the institution I was at. And having had a recent master's degree and I didn't have any other I wasn't married, you know, I didn't have a double income or anything like that. Um, I was actually offered a position in the career services office next door that paid just enough more, just enough, not a ton, but just enough more that my, uh, I didn't have to be lecturing also 12 hours and, you know, trying to make my finances work. So at that point I moved into career services. I stayed in career services for about a decade. Uh, three years at that institution. And then I came to my current institution, the University of Central Missouri. Um, at the University of Central Missouri, I had a lot of professional opportunity to work with a lot of different departments, design and develop programs, design and develop courses, um, both career related courses, then also departmental courses, specifically for the English department and their new technical writing program. And um, I was still adjuncting in the business college teaching um, business communication. And when a full-time position came open that way, they asked me to apply. And so I did. And then they didn't hire me. <laughs> so I stuck around. They hired my wonderful colleague, Dr. Houseworth. <laughs> so, and then another business communication instructional position came open about two years later. And I didn't even see it. I was happy and happy enough in career services. I had just met my husband. My life was going and, you know, just kind of on autopilot. And they reached out to me to say, aren't you going to apply for this? We almost hired you last time. I was like, oh, I, I guess I will. And so I applied for that position and um, I was really sad to leave career services. I, I cried a lot. It felt very like this existential crisis, but I'd always loved being in the classroom and it was a nine month contract. It, the pay was different. There were lots of reasons to go that direction. And um, 
I was very, very happy there. About two years into that faculty role, we started a new program in my, I, I work in the management department and we started a new program in the College of Business, which is an events marketing and management program. And I had quite a bit of events management experience from having served in career services, career fairs, interview days, all of that type of stuff. And so they put me in charge of creating some courses and I eventually became um, the unofficial program coordinator. It's a long story. I will be the program coordinator at some point very soon. And then um, the faculty mentor, faculty advisor for all of those students. And so 15 years later, here I was back advising students in a way that I hadn't done since the very beginning of my career. And it's been it's been really awesome. It's been kind of that that missing piece that brings all of the things that I love to do together. Yeah. And I think one of like talking about like the story in terms of like you are applying and let's say you didn't get the job and then you're like, yeah, I'm not going to apply for it or you didn't see the job posting. And then they reach out to you. It just shows like you can have an impact on someone and, and not realize it. Yeah. And then the fact that they're like, hey, you should put your app in. Yeah, okay, I, th I think I'll do that. And I remember being disappointed, obviously, when I didn't get it the first time, not surprised because the person, my colleague, who's wonderful that they did hire had been with the department in a different role, you know, but I remember thinking, well, that didn't work out. Guess I wasn't meant to be a faculty member, right? That's, that's fine. I like what I'm doing. And then, yeah, I continued to adjunct for them. And they were like, what are you crazy? You know, we like, we need you. We thought you were coming on board with this, but I didn't even, I wasn't even paying enough attention to know. And that's what I like about these stories is, you know, that everyone kind of has their, their different uh, path and the fact that, you know, I've, I haven't heard this one before. So yeah, this, this one's really great to hear. And Craig, so last time we spoke with you, you were at USD. So where's your career taking you? Where's your life taking you over this last year since we last met? I have two important updates. The first is the most important. Uh, since uh, I was last on this podcast, I have started to listen to podcasts more. And so it's a lot more fun being on a podcast when you like kind of know what a podcast is about and what it's like. So um, so that's the, the major update. The minor update is that I moved a few states away and got my dream job. So... Um, I'm an assistant professor for the Academic Advising Certificate Master's and PhD program at Kansas State University. Um, I joke, of course, but like this really has been just incredible. I feel so blessed and fortunate, um, especially when I, I uh, work with, with our students here. So uh, it's a little bit meta in that I'm advising grad school or grad students for academic advising. So um, that's lots of fun. And, you know, my first year here was a little um, surreal, like it is, you know, for everyone. But like, I was basically kind of in my lane in in my home office all year. So it's been a lot of fun, like coming to campus. And, you know, of course, the only reason I have my mask off is because I'm in my private office. Everywhere I go outside of here, I have to have my mask on, of course. Um, this will be so fun to watch in like 20 years and we'll be like, what the hell are we talking about with masks? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been just a lot of fun. I've gotten to teach, um, research courses as well as courses in academic advising, uh, which, you know, what could be better? It's been a blast. 
I know. And then you're mentioning it's your dream job. And then even there was a K-State article where you're quoted as saying, I'm still speechless that this is my dream job. And it came true. I mean, what is single day still a so year and a half later? What is it about K-State that this is this is the place that you want to be? Well, I mean, this is the the home place of Nakata, you know, and Nakata has been such it's really difficult for me to put into words what Nakata has done for me and the friendships that I've made. Many of my best friends in the world are people in Nakata. And so to, to kind of be at the place where the, the room where it happens, so to speak, is, is just amazing. And then, and then of course there's the, the discussions about academic advising. And of course, uh, you know, you weren't going to get me on here and, and not have me say uh, a word about professionalizing the field of academic advising and to have a role in that. I mean, we all have roles in that, but to have a, a role in, in the curricula for people who are doing our, ma our certificate, our master's program or PhD program because they are passionate about this work. And Matt, I think you said that this is going to air sometime at mid-November. So those of you who are still thinking about a PhD in academic advising, I'm doing a little recruitment. Uh, uh, you have like two weeks now by the time this will have aired. Uh, December 1st is our deadline for cohort two. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Well, you heard it here. Get that application in. And That's Kira, right. you also, you earned your BA in English from K-State. Uh, we what, both what, have BAs in English. Yes. What was it about K-State that drew you to wanting to do your bachelor's degree there? I grew up in Kansas. I'm from Kansas, out in western Kansas, actually closer to Colorado than to Kansas City. And um, my parents went to K-State, my older brother, all of my siblings actually went there. We were one of those families. You know, we have like the, the stone in the yard with the power cat head and everybody's name on it. So I really grew up <laughs> uh, as a member of a K-State family. Um, I also, I actually thought about not going to K-State, weirdly enough, like that was completely taboo in my family, but my grandparents were Oklahoma State alumni, which is where I ended up for my master's degree. And I said, no, I'm going to go to Oklahoma State just to be different. And then I went abroad for a year between high school and college and um, wanted to get back home. My older brother was at K-State and I just wanted to, that year abroad was amazing, but I wanted to get back to what felt familiar and K-State was always kind of home away from There's home. No Still is, like really. home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. No place like home. Yeah, that's your... different for us Kansans. Yeah, well, that's from uh, one of Craig's favorite movies. <laughs> yeah, it's not. But fun <laughs> fact, uh, Kira, what, 10 miles, maybe 15 miles away from here, there is the Wizard of Oz Museum. And I've actually been there. And as a, 
a not super fan of the film, uh, it was really enjoyable. So uh, for those who come into Manhattan for Nakata visits or whatever, you got to go. It's a great experience. I want to go. That's that's one of my favorite movies. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you can no. stay with Craig. He has a guest room. Perfect. <laughs> make that happen. <laughs> so how did you all meet? I'll let Kier respond to this. I'll go. I'm so, including your email in my faculty evaluation. <laughs> I am, as we discussed before the podcast, I'm a, a doctoral candidate and I'm working on my dissertation. And that's a whole other story. But I'm working on my dissertation. Um, I'm examining the career management of female primary role advisors that have been in a primary role for at least six years. And um, as I was put, it's a long story. It's a short story. I'll make it short. As I was putting together my literature review, I was having trouble problematizing, first of all. I didn't, like, what's wrong with somebody who wants to stay in a job? Like, I couldn't really figure out what it was I was trying to problematize for my study. I just knew that I was very, very interested in academic advising. I was very interested in practitioners of academic advising. I'm very interested in the way that they function in the system and are valued in the system. And um so I went to the Nakata Research Institute. I hadn't been a member of Nakata for a very long time. It just wasn't, you know, really didn't speak that clearly to the roles that I had been in. But I joined Nakata. Um, Celia, Cecilia Oliveras, uh, she was actually in my doctoral cohort, um, not at the same school as I, but we had kind of connected. And so I joined Nakata. I went to the Research Institute. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go see advisors in their natural habitat, right? <laughs> like, what, what, do, what do they care about? What are the issues that are prevalent? What's the literature that's out there? And so as I was working on this study, kind of fleshing it out, this was just this last summer, um, I was talking through it with um, my faculty member of the Research Institute, who was Sarah Sharf Champlin. Am I saying that right? I just called her Sarah. Anyway, and she Champlin Sharf. Champlin Scharf. And she said, you know, I'm I'm hearing you say these things. And have you looked into the scholarship of Craig McGill? And so I wrote down Craig M-A-G-I-L-L. And I continued to misspell his name for even after we started working together. And so I wrote down his name. History, in fact. Right. <laughs> and I had, of course, come across his scholarship in reading advising literature, but I hadn't zeroed in on that scholarship. And so then I read everything he wrote. And I'm like, oh. I think this is a prof I think what I'm latching on to is a professionalization issue. I think that's that's the framing of what it is I'm seeing here. And so I wrote my literature review this summer. I just took my comps this summer, wrote my lit review this summer, just defended my proposal. And it's all just McGill, 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 actually, McGill, McGill. And so I was like, who is this McGill guy? And I was looking for a very specific set of literature. I was looking for literature about women in advising, and I wasn't finding it. And I'm saying these things in my literature review, like, it doesn't exist. And I needed to make sure that was true. And so I Googled McGill and saw that he was at K-State. And I was like, oh, well, I'm a K-Stater. He's a K-Stater. K-Staters can contact K-Staters, right? Like that's something that we do. And so I reached out to him and basically said, I'm your biggest fan, <laughs> right? Like that's really, I, I was a little calmer in the first email, but I've read your scholarship. I'm working on this. I just want you to know how sincerely I appreciative I am that somebody's doing the scholarship. And um, that was just a note of appreciation to make that connection. And he emailed me back. 
And I remember getting the email that night and I called uh, my girlfriends that are in my cohort. And I was like, oh my God. I was completely fangirling over this this scholar that I admired. And, And so anyway, we set up a meeting because I did have some questions about my dissertation. And then, um, if you know anything about Craig, it's that he will do research with you. And, and um, you out of mixed methods at that meeting. We did because I still was stud- designing my study. I've been through my program very, very fast. Um, very, very fast. Well, I should be done in April and that'll be two years and nine months from when I started. Um, and I didn't I didn't slow down enough to go through the process, really. I just need know I needed to get done. And so. Uh, yeah, I was talking to Craig. I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I should do that. And so he talked me out of a mixed method study, which is brilliant because I can't math. Right. So that was probably the right thing to do and um, really helped me with my study design. And I have a wonderful committee, but they're not um, they don't know anything about academic advising. And so he's really been kind of my unofficial committee member. He's my he's my subject matter expert. And um I didn't know if I could research or not. My program was not a heavily research intensive program. It's a it's a practitioner's program. It's meant to it's meant to build higher education leaders, not necessarily higher education scholars. And um, Craig let me try. We had some obviously some common areas of overlap and interest. And um, I realized I loved leader. I realized I love scholarship. And he was patient enough to kind of help me. He's still helping me on the journey. I mean, we've just gotten started, but that's. Now we write together a lot, a lot. One of my favorite performances of all time is Kathy Bates in Misery. And uh, I'm your Where's number this going? one fan. I'm your number one fan. <laughs> <laughs> You've been totally Kathy Bates. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I haven't. I've been a value-added addition to your research stream. Um, <laughs> but we we connected very quickly and clearly have a similar sense of humor and enjoy a lot of the same things and definitely have a lot of the same scholarly interests and both drink too much wine. So a lot of, lot of territory there. Okay. I drink too much wine. I'm sorry, Craig, not you. Wait, so red wine or white wine? Red. Red 100%. (laughs) Yeah. I don't associate with people who drink white wine. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I drink it on occasion. (laughs) You know, another interesting twist in this, my parents have since retired to Manhattan. They didn't live there when I was in school there, but when they retired, that's where they moved. They actually live like less than a mile from Craig. Isn't that crazy? So do you, Craig, do you and Kira's parents like meet up for dinner? <laughs> we hang out like three times a week. No, the point is when I go visit my parents, I also go visit Craig because. It's crazy because we haven't met yet. Oh, I was thinking like you'd go home to visit your parents and like there's Craig just chatting with them. <laughs> that would be so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah at some point. We'll work that out. Yeah. yeah. That's great. We've only known each other since June. So, you know, yeah, we're taking it slow. Crazy. But yeah, but we, any- feel like, we feel like we've known each other for like ever. Uh, we know each other pretty well at this point and uh, we know how to give each other uh, a hard time and uh, <laughs> a shoulder to cry on or whatever. But it's one of those things where, you know, you're like, hey, Craig, I have, you know, I have, I think we relate. I have questions on advising, on scholarship. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned any of that and, and Craig's usually like, 
let's meet up. Let's figure this out. How can how can I help you develop mm -hmm. yourself? And can we work on anything together? And you were mentioning that there's various projects that you all are working on. Is there any that that you can share? I was just going to say there's been more than once where you like were not super thrilled with what I said in terms of feedback, but you had said that later recognized like the value of it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I'm a novice researcher. I really am. I've done some research with my colleagues. I'm always like, you know, second or third. Still, I am with Craig. But, you know, I mean, it was like, here, Kira, proofread this and find us some literature. You know, so I wasn't completely, completely brand new to it, but very, very new to scholarship. And I didn't get a lot of critique through my doctoral program um, because I am a good writer and a good thinker. And the program wasn't designed to create, you know, these outstanding scholars. Um, and so it, everything I did, not that I didn't get any critique, but it was good enough, right? Like it was, it was, it was good enough. And so to now be working with somebody who I do consider to be a very, very serious scholar. And it's sometimes it hurts my feelings a little bit, right? <laughs> do you guys know the Tech Nine song, Fragile? <laughs> I'm going to go listen to this after this podcast. <laughs> you should, you should, because it's like, you know, this is something that all of a sudden I care about and I want to be good. And I don't just want to be good for myself, but I also want to be good for Craig because he's given so much of his time and so much of his just personal mentorship to me. I want to write things. And he's like, oh, thank God I didn't have to write that. Right. Um, and then it comes back with like edits. I hope <laughs> And, and the people who know me know this well. I hold my same standards to myself, too. You know, and so I'll read something I wrote a month ago and go, oh, my God, what the hell am I trying to say here? You know, like there's all whatever. There's problems. Um, but we, go ahead. Is it a relationship? our writing relationship blossomed so quickly, you know, yes. it went from like one day he's like confidence building and no cure. I think you can do this. Your mind is smart and your ideas are good. And, you know, and then like three days later, it's like, plant that's crap. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and as I, and I feel like when I'm being not, you know, when I'm being more objective about it, I feel like it's because my skill is really increasing. And so therefore his critique is really increasing, right? Am I right, Craig? Is that yeah. what's going yeah, on yeah, here? Yeah. I'm getting better um, so you can be more critical. Yeah. So you're, like, work, That's good. you're working, your thinking is is strong enough that I feel like you can handle, you know, the I don't even know if I call it critique. Well, maybe, but like this is because it's always except for like a few occasions, it's been the context of our work together. So it's been more like, I think we need to do something here and I think it needs something, you know, whatever. Um, we also like feed off of each other really well. And one of the really unique things about our friendship and uh, collegial relationship is that we're complete opposites in terms of when we function. And so um, many people know this about me. I'm not a morning person and uh, I don't hit my stride until, you know, later in the day. Bedtime? <laughs> it's it's not uncommon for like me to midnight? be working past midnight even, you know, till one, two in the morning. And so what would happen, especially in those early days, is that Kira would be working first thing in the morning, like, I don't know, Five. seven, eight, nine yeah. or may, earlier. Yeah. And then I would read what she did later that night and do my own edits. And then she'd work on it then. And so we had 
this really like, you know, we're, we're both in the midst of our semesters now. And so it hasn't been quite the same since summer, but just like this really intense productive period this summer. And, um, you know, she just blew me away in terms of, of, uh, her ability to synthesize literature for, um, Basically, we were looking at uh, reviving a paper that's from my dissertation, and she said, I think I know where to go with this in terms of uh, the constructing the literature that needed to be built to frame the, the research. Uh, and she went with it and just like within, I don't know, like it feels like a few days. It may have been a week, but like you had just done this incredible work. And then, of course, that's when I started to kind of tear it apart a little bit and, you know, move pieces of it to the introduction and pieces of it to a, a separate literature review section. And that's just sort of like the process of writing. Um, and, and part of this also is if if she or anybody thinks I'm a hard ass. They only need to meet my advisor. And I am saying this publicly because I would say this to her face. You know, she is incredible. She made me who I am. But gosh, she's scary. <laughs> and Kira has had the chance to now meet her. And so um, she's a co-author on this paper. And she has yet to, to do her review of it. So I'm just sort of anxious <laughs> to see what her review of our first collaboration uh will be that would make me super nervous oh yeah i'm plenty <laughs> nervous yeah craig's like do i need your reminder to work on it i'm like no <laughs> nope got my ego in check right now let's uh so to net rock if you're listening, let's get on it <laughs> but i wouldn't say craig that you're you're tearing it to shreds, let's say. I mean, you were saying, you know, oh, I see this part here towards the end, but maybe this can go in the introduction. So you're kind of seeing that this is all good stuff, but maybe position-wise, it flows better in a different order. Yeah, or those two paragraphs that I said had no business being in there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but isn't, but isn't uh, directionless, I think was the word. Um, <laughs> Meanders, right? I think it said. But as, as, as a novice scholar, and then also in our relationship, you know, our writing relationship, not necessarily in our, our friendship, but, you know, and where there's such a, a power dynamic, a power differential in play, like I, especially in the beginning, I'm so hungry for this approval because I don't know what I'm doing, but I know that whatever it is, I love it. And this is something I want to do. And I'm 41 years old and I've never been trained in the way that Craig is training me, you know? And so I think that because I have so much heart in it and so much hope in it, and then so much gratitude for Craig that like, you know, in the beginning, especially even the little things were like, I'm trying so hard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Well, and if she has no idea what she's doing, she's the most successful faker on earth <laughs> because she does not at all read that way. No. So um, it, it really, you know, it, it was just it was so, so fun working with you because you brought the game that I could play. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't I, it was not like, you know you know, I'm, I'm a professor, of course, so I teach writing and I teach grad students at various levels, some of whom it really is going down to the very fundamentals. And that's not 
was you know what my experience with you was at all. So isn't this nice? We should have can be friendly to each other. This is positive, and we're gonna have to listen to this later. And yeah, (laughs) whenever we fight, I'm gonna play this podcast. Um, (laughs) now do you answer do you actually answer each other's or finish each other's sentences now? Um sometimes sometimes we see things pretty differently sometimes too. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of common to answer your questions, the projects that we're working on mostly deal in the vein of professionalization and advising. Um, but, you know, when you look at professionalization, there's a lot of different steps to the process. And so, you know, each one of those things is worth examining. It's worth examining the education. It's worth examining the career opportunities. It's worth examining. Uh, mine focuses a lot um, on structural um, reproduction of gender inequities within workplaces. So, you know, there's a lot of different areas of focus, but I would sum it up to say that generally it all deals in the realm of professionalization. Yeah. And where we differ, it's, it seems to almost always be a healthy, different perspective that really sharpens both of our perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's pretty infrequent that we totally just have to agree to disagree. Uh, I think there is one clear, uh, place where that is. And I think we could talk about that here because honestly, it's, it's a debate in the field. And I think it's a very valuable, legitimate debate. Did I tease enough? Yeah, I would say go more into it if you want. So Kira, does academic advising belong in academic affairs or student affairs? I don't know that it matters where it belongs. I think academic advising is a student service. And I, you know, what's been really, really fascinating, and this is something that Craig and I need to, to flesh out for future scholarship in my study. I'm My study has a, has a two-part interview protocol, so I'm into the second interviews with people, and they're just amazing. Like, I can't sleep. I'm just rolling all this around in my head all the time. And... um So anecdotally, I have not conducted any data analysis and I don't I don't want to say too much because I want these fascinating studies, you know, to be revealed. But there's seems to be a really, really strong argument for having academic advising housed within academic units in a decentralized fashion with a reporting structure up through a dean and a provost. If the primary role advisor is the primary relationship and the primary primary benefactor of the structure. So I see your point. I think that, Which but I haven't I, made yet. What is my point? <laughs> the academic advising works very, very well when it's housed within the academic structure. I think to conflate advising with being full-time in the classroom or even more to remove advising from the other services that support students through their journey. I, I can't, I can't buy into that. You know, one of the biggest arguments, I guess, that Craig and I've ever gotten into is he said, but people come to the university for the classes. 
no, they don't. Where'd you go to school? Right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a big part of the reason why some people go to college, but some people go to college to find community. Some people go to college to find the football games. Some people go to college to find, to and have an extension that, like, of living their high why, school dreams. Why does it, why does it have to be like a service for like, I don't think it has to be the classroom or service. Like we know that teaching, teaching and learning takes place in traditional classrooms, whether they're lecture or different types, you know, there's teaching and learning that takes place in labs. And so there's teaching and learning that can take place in offices. And I'm not arguing that teaching and learning isn't taking place. I think some of the most important teaching and learning is taking place in advising offices. I mean, that's the entire navigation of the system. But higher education in general is built on this kind of bifurcated system that you're one or the other, right? And I think that it would be easier to embrace being a member of the other and to really build off of that structure than to try to force it into this. I don't know. Who's who's forcing it? I don't know that anybody is forcing it. I think you are and your scholarship is forcing it, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) You're wrong. (laughs) You need to just let it go. It's not going to happen. I also think one of our former presidents in a presidential debate, Wrong. 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 (laughs) I also think some of the issues, especially now that I'm so up close and personal with these primary role advisors, I just finished interviews 24 and 25 today, um, and I started on October 1st. So I've been inundated in these interviews. He's a real slacker. I'm I'm slacker, right? (laughs) um, I think that one of the things that I think that we really, really, as, as scholars and aspiring scholars, and, you know, Craig, leaders in Nakata, I'm not, but Craig is, that we really need to be careful about when we reimagine academic advising and we work towards this, this professionalization where, you know, potentially it's housed in an academic unit and there's a, a career ladder that mirrors tenure. You know, when we rely too much on the academic paradigm, I don't think we don't want to leave the current practitioners behind. We don't want to leave the accidental advisors behind. We don't want to leave the people who stumbled into the career and now have been doing it for 18 years and are doing this wonderful, wonderful service to students. And mm-hmm. I I worry about that. That's the forcing it that I'm talking about. I think that there's a lot of value in an advising education. And man, I wish at the point that I was, you know, even in career services advising students had some of that additional in my background, but I, I don't, I think that advisors writ large are these phenomenal additions to their institution. And I don't think we need to reconstruct to the point that those people don't get to play anymore. And I, and I, I think there's value in that and thinking very deeply about that. One of the, a couple of the things about professionalization and, you know, some listeners are, are going to be turned off when I talk about professionalization, but I guess I would implore those listeners to, to, to not mistake what I'm saying for professional behavior or being a professional, because that's oftentimes the knee-jerk reaction to this. We're a professional. Why do we keep talking about this? Well, we keep talking about this because we are not valued and recognized 
for the incredible work that we do to change students' lives. And so until we are there, we need to keep talking and, and strategizing about how we better, you know, uh, advocate for ourselves. So to me, that's what professionalization is. And so what I was going to say is that one of the difficult things uh, about this is that as occupations professionalize, one of the inevitable things for better or for worse is that you have to start to put parameters around the work and start to exclude and include based on what that work is. That's just par for the course of professionalizing. And, um, and oftentimes how that comes, I'm not, I'm not advocating for a required degree or a required certification necessarily, but just as a point of saying that historically as occupations professionalize, that typically is part of that trajectory. Um, and I've, I've said for years, um, and I'll just say it here, my fantasy is that faculty or that um, advisors would be uh, classified as faculty akin to how librarians are oftentimes classified. Although I've learned recently that there's movement to deprofessionalize librarians. And in some places they are staff. But um, I would love for for um, for advisors to have, you know, scholarly and, informed practice. And that's where I think this conversation matters and the difference between academic affairs and student affairs, because I believe that's potentially the wrong anchoring. I think that you can anchor in the faculty side and then you have your traditional tripod of service scholarship and teaching or, you know, however you want to create that. But I think that if we anchor in the in the faculty side, the 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 evolution of that precludes a lot of who your current and best practitioners are in advising. I think that if you anchor in the student services side and you look at student service professions that do have a career ladder, that do have I mean, none of them get paid that much money, right? But where there are these opportunities for growth. I mean, you look at housing, just as an example, just as an example. I'm not saying we need to do what housing does, but you are a, a floor director and then you're a hall director and then you're a unit director and you can have a career, right? You can move up. You can get additional recognition, responsibility, budgeting, managing personnel in a way that it, academic advising isn't really built for. I wonder if the faculty anchoring is the most inclusive of the the population that is advisors or if a student services anchoring would be more inclusive of your practitioners yeah and a lot of it really just depends on the institution so like a lot of the california community colleges a lot of the academic advisors are hired on as faculty uh, but a lot from the cal state university system and i would imagine even the university of california system were all hired on as staff as academic advisors so mm -hmm. But what what would be Nakata's role in in this, um, if any? Pass. <laughs> <laughs> or I in your opinion, <laughs> to entertain the scholarship, right? To to take the different ideas and to allow people to be exposed to the different ideas and to sort through the arguments, right? Like I, I don't know. 
Yeah, and it might be an, an, something to continue to think about. And because I would imagine they would have some role in it. I mean, being this global community for academic advising. So what's, what's tricky about Nakata that differs from other professional associations is the 503C status. And it doesn't allow Nakata to lobby politically. Um, and so I do think in some ways Nakata's hands are tied and there's certain things they can't take a hard uh, position on. Uh, and I'm sympathetic to that uh, for as, as little as I know about the details of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are some times when, you know, and I think about putting the, the parameters around what advising entails and what in advising doesn't entail. And um, whether it's possible or not, it, it is my wish that Nakata could take a harder stance on that. Um, something that like the American School Counseling uh, Association did uh, is they have a, a list of do's and don'ts. And it's it very clearly demarks what is within the purview of a school counselor and what is not. And I think it's a very helpful guide. Um, and I know that just it, it's it's complicated by the fact that advising positions, like you you said, Matt, at, at different institutions, but even beyond that, within institutions, how athletic uh, advising looks as opposed to transfer advising versus you know um, just any any model you can name, the the role is different. Faculty versus primary role advisor, so. It's, it's complicated. Um, and I, I guess what I want people to, to hear is that this is a complex field and it has a depth and a richness that's worth talking about. And if we're talking about issues of moving the field forward, that's professionalization. Professionalization is not, oh, look at us here. We're not a profession. Oh, it's only us. We can't do anything. That's not what it's about. So, and obviously I get really animated when I talk about this, but I hope whether you agree or disagree with me, I hope that's what you'll hear. Yeah, well, I think you can actually take this topic and, you know, Nakata has their Nakata Presents podcast where they actually take topics and go into deep dives. And it's usually like a five piece series. So anyone yep. that's listening or Craig and Kira could also do that podcast. Yeah, call um, us. I think, yes, I think that, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> but with a little bit of time left, I do want to touch upon the fact that both of you have been primary role advisors. You've been faculty advisors. For those that might be a primary role advisor, not really know what a faculty advisor does or vice versa, can you talk about some of the similarities and differences between the two? I'll go first since I have the least experience, um, you know, as a primary role advisor. And at my institution, the faculty advisor role is it's a newer role and really they hand off in most instances, they hand off to the faculty advisor once a like graduation plan is already on file. So the academic advisors do a lot of the hard work. My role as a faculty advisor is more of the um, connection to industry, helping students find their way career wise, just being there to to support them through um, that transition and to work and to build since I teach, since I am an advisor for a new major, really to build that system out and that network out. Um, 
I know that I rely very, very, very heavily on the um, professional advisors that serve my students. And I even on things like every time I send out job postings to students, I always CC the advisors because they want to know what types of with a new program, what types of jobs are out there for my students, who's recruiting my students. We meet with them once a year and they can tell us how messed up our curriculum is. You know, in the College of Business, there's a lot of layers. There's pre-admissions, there's business core, there's the the, the major classes, you know, and so I we rely upon them a lot, especially with the new majors. We're trying to build it out and make it accessible to people, um, but yet still maintain, you know, the integrity of what we're trying to do. So we collaborate a lot with the primary role advisors. I collaborate a ton with the primary role advisors, and I think that's been really important for the success of the degree program. We've grown exponentially. We grew by 30% last year in, you know, COVID year when everything was just being decimated. I think that collaboration between what I'm doing and what they're doing is just really, really important. And I can't imagine we'd be able to find that success without it and just really supporting each other. You know, they talk they support me. They ask me questions. I ask them questions. Um, there's a ton of communication that goes back and forth. And I think that we, I would, I would like to think, I'm sure you'd have to ask Kristen and Jennifer, right? But they're equally reliant on this relationship in order to help the students be successful in the major. So for, for those of you who don't know me, I was a primary role advisor for almost a decade. Uh, for nine years at two uh, research one institutions that uh, had very little in common beyond the fact that they were large state universities. Um, so that was sort of my um, socialization to advising. And uh, when I was at my previous uh, position at FIU, I got to, to work with a wonderful faculty advisor. Um, and I've said a number of times, if I could have done research and scholarship at the rate and level that I wanted to as an advisor, I never would have left. And that's probably why I'm so influenced by seeing the advisor role as being a faculty role where the teaching occurs in the advising office and the service involves committees and professional service and the research and scholarship, you know, include presentations and publications and, 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 and those good things. Um, I don't pretend that every advisor wants those things, but I wish that there was a, a path for those who do want to do that um, without naming anybody publicly, because I wouldn't want to do that. I not only was I not supported to do research um, and scholarly writing and publication, I was really kind of discouraged. Um, and that that was heartbreaking, you know, to me. Um, and, and I just I sure hope that that's not the case for for others here listening. Um, but it's it's again ties back to advocating for the role. So I'm very passionate about us reducing um, caseload sizes so that whether it's formal writing for publication or not, you can do more scholarly advising uh, because you have fewer advisees and are able to spend more time with them. 
you're able to do some professional development. You're able to read, you know, the Nakata Journal, the Nakata Review, the Mentor, the Journal of Academic Advising, um, other scholarship that informs your advising, whether it's published in an advising journal or not. The books that are coming out in our in our field. I mean, there's so much amazing. Our field is just exploding in terms of scholarship, and this scholarship needs to inform our practice. But if we've got caseloads in excess of 500, 800, 1,000, there's no way to do this, really. Um, and so that's sort of where I come from in terms of how I think about advising and it being a scholarly activity. So it's going to sound pretty crazy, but I don't see much of a difference between what I did as a primary role advisor and what I do as a faculty advisor. The only difference is that I get credit now for, for writing for publication. And, and that's not a small thing. I mean, that's amazing. And I know that not everybody has, um, you know, uh, in, in my partnership here, not everybody in this room here today gets credit for that. Um, and I feel very blessed. But I, I think that we can still advocate for, re, you know, for these changes so that at, at the very least advisors can engage in more scholarly practices to inform their advising. And I think that it's good that you widen that umbrella. And this is something that, you know, I, I remind Craig of frequently. Not everybody knows how to scholar, right? Like I'm almost done with an entire doctoral program, which was a very, very good and very, very reputable. R I don't want to, you know, make it seem like my, my program failed me. But, and I'm just now learning how to scholar. And I think that Again, when we reimagine scholarly activity and advising, we have to be very careful. You know, I'm an instructional faculty member at my institution, which means I'm not tenure eligible. I still have faculty. It works different. It's just like advising. It works different on every. I'm fully participating in a way that a lot of people aren't, um, or a lot of institutions don't allow them to be. But we've just implemented a new instructional faculty promotion thing. And one of the things that I think is really dangerous about that is that there's an emphasis that can be there on scholarship. And most of the people in instructional lines don't know how to scholar, right? They have a master's degree and they may have chosen a thesis option. They may not have chosen a thesis option. And again, I just think that when we anchor everything in higher education on what we expect of our faculty members, that we... Um, neglect to recognize that for most people, not not phenom up here in the left hand corner, at least on my screen, but for most people, that's a pretty significant learning curve that has to be taught in a very, very direct manner. And I am very hesitant to anchor the success of so many professionals on something that they may or may not have been exposed to, they may or may not have interested in, they may or may not have aptitude for. Um, like and so I like that idea of expanding the idea of scholarship to consuming scholarship and not just creating right. scholarship. Right. Presenting at Nakata, you know, it doesn't have to be formal, like not even that formal is not the right word, but, but you know, publishing in a peer reviewed journal, it, it doesn't have to look that way for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think if anyone has questions, they can definitely reach out to both of you, but then also Dr. Wendy Troxell uh, from Nakata as well. I was well, just going to mention person. her article on scholarly, I forget what it's called, but like it's, and I'm not just saying this because she's my colleague, <laughs> but it's it's wonderful, you know, mm -hmm. and and it really models how to to conduct scholarly practice 
without necessarily having to scholar, you know? Yeah. And she also she says too, terrible. like if you're, yeah. And she also says, if you're going to, if you present, if you want to maybe make that presentation into an article, record that session. And then that literally can be your first draft of an article. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I know as we're winding out on time, I do have questions for each of you. So Kira, I'm going to start with you. Um, in one of your classes, there's a chapter that covers uh, thank you messages. And um, you how do said, you know this? I, I, I just know things. And and you believe this Speaking is something that Kathy can help. Bates, stalker. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then to my YouTube channel. <laughs> and you believe this is something that can help people get the furthest in I their do. careers. Uh, why is that? I am of the school of thought that our careers are um, anchored largely in part by the connections that we make and the relationships that we build. I mean, I think that most people would agree with that, but I, I think that it's, it needs to be formally taught just like everything else that we teach people. Um, gratitude goes a long way. Gratitude goes a long way with being remembered Gratitude goes a long way with helping to elevate other people around you and creating a nicer culture around you. Um, I just I just really think it's important to just stop and be thankful, um, not only for your own mental health, right, but for your for your career success. And so, yeah, I'm the queen of the thank you note. Uh, <laughs> I love to write heartfelt thank you notes, but even more importantly, I think I love to teach heartfelt thank you notes. And it's an exercise I do every single semester in my classes. And I actually bring the thank you notes and, you know, we brainstorm when we go through the process. It's not just like write a thank you note and leave. And the the spirit and the mood in the classroom that day is just it's, it's lovely. It's just really, really, really lovely. And there's a part of me that just knows because I actually make them write it out and I say, choose somebody accessible, choose somebody you're going to see in the next 24 hours, choose. And you can just sort of, you know, for about 48 hours, just sort of feel the campus vibe kind of coming up here because they're choosing their professors and their roommates. And, um, you know, who just, you're going to see in 48 hours and I've never written a thank you note to. <laughs> Because I, I give you lots of verbal thank you notes. Hello, first of all. And I think that if you would check your email, there's definitely some that qualify as thank you notes and text messages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'll probably <laughs> devote like an entire whatever in my dis in my book report, right? To, to your awesomeness. But I just I think that I think that relationships are are enormously important. And I think one of the the most important parts of building a relationship is remembering just to have gratitude for the people that are helping you get there. Yeah, no, I love that. And maybe Craig doesn't want a thank you. No, maybe he just wants a monument erected in his honor. I don't know. Well, <laughs> hell yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> but, but Craig, tell us about your, your new book that you have out with uh, Jennifer Jocelyn. So as you, I, I messed up by the mirroring, I keep messing this up, but um, very proud of this, uh, advising LGBTQ uh, college students. Uh, this it, labor of love that, uh, you know, sort of the pieces of which have been marinating for about a decade. And then one day during my postdoc, it just sort of like, oh, I could write a book proposal. And then, you know, I got feedback on that for, you know, several weeks before I submitted it. But um, I'm really, really proud of it because the authors who have contributed have just, uh, 
I mean, they're just in an amazing array um, and uh, just covering different aspects of, of the issues. So there's the first section is like a theoretical foundations. And so there's, you know, student development theory, there's queer theory, there's uh, intersectionality, there's, uh, you know, um, it, uh, career, kind of looking at career issues. Uh, the second issue, the second portion talks about campus issues related to um, these students. The third section is uh, more a more specific look at several of the intersections of these students. Um, you know, uh, LGBTQ students of color, international students, student athletes, and then the final section is kind of the the practical portion. Uh, where there's a chapter on allyhood as well as campus resources. One of the things that um, Wendy Schindler and I um, argue in our chapter on allyship is that being a member of the LGBTQ community does not make you an ally. You actually have to um, work toward being an ally. Uh, it is something you do actively and you don't rest on your laurels, just like any allyship that you do uh, or any ally work that you do. Uh, and so that's that's something that we um, kind of unpack there. Uh, the book is now available. Uh, I'm super proud of, of, of these authors. Um, I think I, I need to single out one, uh, and I hope I don't get too emotional here, but Christy Carlson was just an incredible thinker in our field. Um, she had done just amazing presentations on um, a, a, applying queer theory to academic advising. And for years, I, and, and I'm, I'm not claiming to be the only person, but myself and, and several other people who were uh, just uh, shaped by her, her work had been trying to push her to write. And for years, she she didn't. And and finally, um, when we were at Nakata at Louisville, she agreed to, to do it. And she wrote a magnificent chapter. And um, in December 2020, passed away um, before uh, the, the book was was released. Uh, but it, it's an incredible work. Um, and I just am so thankful to have known Christy as, as an academic, as an advisor, as a human, as a scholar. And um, so uh, if, if for no other reason, you know, uh, there are many chapters in the book that are wonderful and I'm proud of all of them, but especially uh, dedicated to, to, to her memory. Absolutely. And it's great to finally see the book out because I know it's something that anyone that has actually participated in the process of a book it takes time, just like doing research and doing articles like both of you have done. And if listeners have any questions, they want to reach out to you based off something that was said in this interview, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, email is first initial C, last name McGill at KSU, Kansas State University edu. And Kira, if anyone wants to get in touch with you or trade uh, Craig stories, how can they contact you? <laughs> Mine is also K, my first initial, Solon, S-O-L-O-N, at U-C-M-O dot E-D-U. Awesome. This was a fun conversation. I loved it. 
And I think we need to have a part two. And I'm just going to let you both just talk to each other. And I think that will be a fun episode as oh. well. So thank you both for being on. Can I make just one last point that I was going to make earlier? Hopefully, <laughs> no. what Kira and I have demonstrated is, you know, its advisors were nice and polite and because we're love, we're the loveliest people on earth, right? But what we would like, at least I would like for this to illustrate is that we can we can disagree and we can have just rich discussions, um, you know, and this is something we talk about with, you know, the upcoming Lowenstein issue of the, the Nakata Review. Uh, you know, I had five PhD students collaborate with me on an on an article that's taking on some of his ideas. And, you know, Mark Lowenstein is like way up here, but he would be the first to agree that we have to engage in discourse so disagreeing is okay. <laughs> well, connected to that before we end this, I, that ties into a community agreement that Anthea Yugawa from UC Berkeley created for Nakata Region 9. And one of them is respect. And it says, be critical of the idea, the process, and the work, and not the person. Because discussions are happening all the time. And be critical of the idea. You know, that's where discussions come from and how things can move forward. And so don't take it personally. But thank you both again for being Absolutely. on. Look forward to having you on for a future podcast episode. Thank you so much, Kira and Craig. That was a lot of fun. I like how you both interact and bounce ideas off one another. Great conversation and a continued conversation for sure regarding the professionalization of advising. And just like that, episode 47 is done. Check out our YouTube channel at Adventures in Advising. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. At the time of this recording, it's mid-November. So hopefully for those in full-on registration mode, hang in there. And I look forward to catching up with you on episode 48 in December. Keep advising. Don't want a complication. Complication.